Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. blog and today we have colin drum i would say back but actually you've not technically been on this show before i've just interviewed you in other places um so colin and i have had a long dialogue going back now probably off and on for five six years um where occasionally we're allies and occasionally we yell at each other on twitter or facebook or something and um Colin shares my distrust of a certain um, hermeneutic that emerges out the emergence or the reemergence maybe of German idealism. Um, And I wanted Colin to come on and talk about why. I'm going to also let you talk about your background in this, um, how maybe it's limited some of your other academic studies, but, but how did you get to a place where, you felt like you needed to declare a nearly wholly academic crusade on the persistence of German (laughs) idealism. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, some, it's kind of quixotic. I mean, yeah, it's, um, so I, yeah, so, so I wanted to, uh, so I I was on, um, before interviewing Barn and we we talked about Mm -hmm. some of my research about, uh, sorry, I was being interviewed. Uh, We talked about my research on money and, and, and some of my critiques of Marx on value theory and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, so here I want to talk about Kant and, 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 Partly, I got to Kant in the way that a lot of people get to the German idealism through Marx. I mean, you start studying Marx, and then you discover that there's Hegel lurking beyond it, and and then you study Hegel, and you realize that Kant is lurking behind it, and and so, you know, my my interest in Kant is uh, has kind of happened accidentally, and and as a as a byproduct of 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 the kind of stuff that I talked about last time with 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 the money politics and all of that. So I kind of want to I want to begin by kind of. Um, talking about how my research into money led me to like, like almost like the way I would put it, like I stepped on this landmine called Kant and it, and it like blew off my leg. And, and then I was like, Oh, there's something here. And I didn't know there was going to be anything there before that, before that happened. Um, so like kind of the, the line of thought that led me 
to thinking about about Kant. It makes that you know I read Kant in undergrad, and it, you know it didn't mean anything to me. It was just a thing that was on the syllabus, and and there, there it is. It's part of the taxonomy of different kind of philosophies there are. Um, and I, I read him again in a grad seminar, and, I, and it didn't really mean that much to me. But I got started thinking about it because. So a lot of my research is about the politics of debt cancellation um, or, the, or, the, or the politics, the, you know, when you start thinking about money and you start thinking about the, the long history of money, you know, what, what a lot of those political struggles are about are about debasement of the coinage. You know, that's what people are mad about. Um, and, and the reason that they're mad about this is because when you debase the coinage, you fuck with the, with the debt, right? So if, you know, if I owe you, if I owe you money and, and, the, and the coin gets debased, then I, that I'm that I'm paying you back something less than I promised, and so this is really a kind of ethical scandal um, associated with coinage. And as I was thinking about this, you know, I, I I noticed like that in ethical thinking in Western philosophy, the paradigm of the lying promise is really central, right? So in in Plato's Republic, the the question of the lying promise. Is, is the first question that gets raised that eventually leads to the to saying what is justice and what is the Republic and all of this. And it's, it's the question of, you know, if you give your friend a sword and he goes mad and you give it back to him, are you, are you doing what you promised or not? And so, and, and this is what Plato, what, what leads Plato to try to find like, well, he's trying to find an abstract concept of value that, that lies beyond nominal promises. Right. So, we, so we make nominal promises, but, but, you know, there could be a way in which we fulfill our nominal promise that would actually violate justice or it seems like this. And so, and so how do we find value, right? So Plato says, you know, if you're giving back the sword, you're giving something bad, whereas what you owe is something good. So what you owe is not the sword, but something good. So we have this concept of value that's going to let us deal with this question of the lying promise, right? And, and so it's there in Plato. It's, 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 it's the, you know, when we start thinking about justice, the first thing we think about, well, you break your promises. And if, and of course, like the promise is, is paradigmatically a contract, right? It's a promise to pay money. And that's actually, that's exactly where Plato then next goes is a promise to pay money. So, so, so much of the monetary system is really credit and, and credit is really a kind of promise. And, and so in thinking about like the, the politics of coinage and the way that it relates to the credit system, I got interested in this question of, the, of, of the ethics of breaking promises as it is understood in the, in the Western tradition. And it's this paradigm case and it, and it, and it gets, so it gets raised by Plato, but it gets taken up again by Kant in Kant's second critique. Um, and, in there's different versions of the second critique, but in, but in all of them, Kant, when Kant is reaching for an example of an unjust action, the first one that he finds is breaking a promise, making a lying promise. And, and, and really what that means is that the paradigm of injustice is the failure to pay your debts. And, and, and so I saw this as kind of connected to a, to a creditor ideology, right? Um, that, that much of, much of Western thinking is, you know, it's from the perspective of elites and elites are the people to whom money is owed. And so, and so they think it's really important that you have to, keep your promises always as a categorical imperative. Um, and, and so I, I, I was, I wrote a different a paper that was about a number of these, this stuff. And I kind of in passing talked about Kant and I, and I, and I, and I made this argument, right. That we have this in Western philosophy, we have this paradigm case of the lying promise um, as being the ultimate unjust action. Maybe we should be critical of this because this is, this is kind of like creditor ideology, right? I mean, I mean, what, what about debt jubilee, right? <laughs> like what about, bankruptcy. I mean, what about freeing people from debt? I mean, couldn't that be what we want to do? But, 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 but in, in, you know, 
if we if we take seriously what Kant is saying, what what he's saying is that this this is the categorical wrong um, in in society. And so and so I wrote this paper and I, I presented it um, in my department, and 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 there was a there was a professor who responded to the paper and they were really angry at me for for saying this about about Kant. And they, they looked at me and said, "The Kantians will destroy you." And I and 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 this was like this was the first moment that it occurred to me that there were Kantians. Like I knew there were like Marxists and Foucauldians and like there are even like Hegelians, but like the idea that there were Kantians was kind of foreign to me because I couldn't imagine cathecting onto Kant. Right? I mean, I understand yeah. as much as I have a criticism of Marx and I, I think that there's problems with this theory. I understand the cathexis into Marx. Right? I mean, I've I've exp- I went through that phase myself. I mean, I mean, Marx. There's a I understand why you would be attached to Marx in this way, but I, but I didn't understand it. It kind of just mystified me. And and this this was maybe five or six, four or five years ago. And, and I've kind of been thinking about it ever since. And and for reasons that I think we can we'll, we'll talk about as we go on. I mean I mean it, it's led me to a consideration of of the problem of Kant's racism, um, which is that there's a, there's a whole debate about too, which we'll talk about in a second. But I'll give you a mm-hmm. response to what I said first before I go. On. Um, there's a whole lot there. I mean, wh- one of the interesting things that that you see. Um, I remember <laughs> reading Kolakowski's Main Currents of Marxism, a book that <laughs> um, I thought was a former vulgar Marxist, vulgar repudiation of Marx. Like, you know, um, but I was fascinated with one of the ideas that he wrote before he split with Marx in the middle of the book, actually, which was tracing um the the intellectual current of marxism not through materialism or even epicurean materialism but actually through neoplatonism um and platonist ontologies now i i, I kind of think this is wrong i think i think like uh marx is actually more Aristotelian in a lot of ways right. but there is a way in which this this idea of debt and of aristocrat, you know, of like debt owed to aristocrats for giving you some of the stuff they took from someone else, basically, um, is mystified in Plato. And it's one of the, it's one of the key things that I saw that I thought Nietzsche was right about when he, when he was after idealism is like, there's, his his reasoning may not stand who he blames for it may not stand his idealization of power may not stand but the idea that the morality develops as a way to mask power conflict i think seems pretty like that insight regardless of the other accoutrement around it seems to be legitimate yes and it it seems that there is a way in which um German idealism through its relationship with, with classical idealism and Plato and all that has a lot of these conflations of the normative and the descriptive. And I mean, it's even kind of a problem in Marxism to be frank, but I know when you get into like Kantian deontology, it's the point. Um, Like um, the is all distinction is 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 an accident of like fallen nature or something it's not it's not something that you should take seriously um and that does seem to permeate economic thought it it permeates moral reasoning in a way that's interesting because a lot of people who see this problem i think in 
in monetary terms or in terms of class don't see it in in terms of the way this is constructed in ethics in general because that's scary and reminds us of reactionaries like Nietzsche. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it also, I mean, it, it it brings us into Carl Schmidt land, which is another right. thing that people are scared scared to go. Right. I mean, I mean, the problem is, well, I mean, let me put it in context. I mean, so you know, part of what I've been interested in and what I've been studying is, is the, is the development of, of interest bearing debt as a, as a social technology, which, which, mm-hmm. which basically is invented in kind of Mesopotamia and Egypt. I mean, bronze age, bronze age empires. And, 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 and these, these empires had, had, had an institution of, you know, the king is a God and, and because the king is a God, he can intervene into, in, into debts. And so they, these, these societies that developed interest bearing debt, originally kind of um, had with it a constitution that allowed them to manage the, the socially disruptive effects of the debt system. And, and they essentially had to do this because they had to maintain the, the social basis of the army. If, if, if they let debt just compound infinitely and everybody fall into debt, then everybody gets enslaved by their creditors because that's what you do. That's what happens. And then there's, and then you have no more free population to be your army. And, and so, and so they had to have a, a, a a mechanism for writing down debts, and it was part of the constitution. But it, but it also involved the idea of of the divinity of the sovereign, um, and 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 the idea that the sovereign is above is above the law, the law of contracts. Um, and 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 what happens in, in the West is is that, well, these kind of kind of you know in the Iron Age, that these they they it, uh, import the technology of sparing debt, but they, but they resist this constitution that says that the sovereign is above the, the law of contracts. And, and, and this is a major problem in classical Western political thinking, and especially in, in Plato's statesman, I think is really the place where you see it. And, and that's where this political theological problem gets set up that people like Carl Schmitt in the 20th century are, are inheriting. And, and here the whole question is, is, is whether the sovereign is above or below the law. And, and that very much means, is, is the sovereign bound by his promises? Uh, uh, can he make a contract? Or, or, or is he the guy who's above all the contracts? And, and, and what Plato concludes in The Statesman is that, well, it's actually bad to either have a sovereign who's above the law or below the law. It's actually, so, so he, Plato recognizes that if you don't have a mechanism to decide on the exception, right? If you don't have a political mechanism that says, yes, normally you have to pay your debts, but here it would be in the interest of the social good to have an exception. So we're going to make an exception. You don't have to do what you promised. Um, uh, uh, he recognizes that this is necessary because because he recognizes that if you, you know, his example is if you make a law and then the lawgiver goes away, so like so on. Um, well, if he comes back, is he is he able to change the law or or not? And so he recognizes that if you don't have a, some kind of sovereignty that's above the law of contracts, this could have social this this could have socially deleterious consequences. I mean, I mean, I mean the 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 laws could be, themselves become a tyrant. And and so he recognizes the necessity of of having a way to decide on the exception. But then he says, but we don't know how to find it. It's it's actually apparetic. It's impossible. We can't find the true art of the statesman. And so therefore it would be better to err on the side of, of having a sovereign below the law who's, who's not able to, to, to decide to break contracts. But what this means is that it's safer to err on the side of the creditors, right? Because the creditors are always the ones who want contracts to be enforced. Um, and this, I think, is a, is a very deep problem in Western political thinking, but, but that kind of comes out in something that looks like pure ethics 
outside of outside of politics, right? And, and Kant is very insistent that whenever all political questions ha- are are subservient to questions of right. So so Kant says politics can never have precedence over right, and and so and so really politics is downstream from from ethics, which which the ultimate consequence of that position is to say, well, the you know the creditors win all the tiebreakers um, because because if if we ever awarded the tiebreaker to the debtors, then, well, we would undermine the entire basis of society. There would be total chaos. And, and that's what we can't have. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so this, this is the problem that I've been thinking about that led me to, to a consideration of Kant, just, just because when I, when I started pointing out that, that Kant's ethics, um, well, I mean, if you tried to apply it, you would have a society in which, in which the creditors win forever because there's no, you know, um, uh, uh, there's there's an absolute categorical imperative to always pay your debts. Um, people got really mad at me, and then I started wondering why people were so mad at me. I mean, and 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 the, the character of that anger was different than than the character of the anger when people get mad at me for for criticizing Marx. And that's what I got interested in because, like, you know, I've been I've been yelling at people about Marx on the internet for years and years and years. So I've met a lot of people that I know. I mean, it's this it's, it's the national pastime, right? But right, like, but like the Kant thing felt like there was like, like people like lost it. Like, like it wasn't like I'm mad at you because, you know, Marx is going to bring the revolution and you're a kind of revolutionary. It was like, it was, it, it was like this unthinking anger. It was like, you know, I felt like people were like hissing at me about like God. you've attacked their being in a way, not just their political project. <laughs> or, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it felt, it felt deeper and more personal and, and just, I, and I, and I, I've just been, I've been trying to figure out what that energy was was about and what was because I, I just felt like there's something going on here and so I well I think there is something going on here that we can get into as we go forward but well I mean uh, so you mentioned something in, in hindsight but th- there is a way I remember thinking uh, Zizek once made an argument and and this will get to some of the racial stuff you want to talk about but I think it, it'll get to a bunch of things that the idealists were always um, less likely to be racialist because empiricists tend to naturalize their framework, um, <laughs> and, yeah. and and idealists for some reason don't. So, like Aristotle talks about natural slaves, and Plato believes in human liberation. Question mark? Question mark? I don't know how you reconcile that with either the Republic or the politics, um, but um, and this was particularly put up by Alain Badu. Um, and I, I just remember thinking about all the German idealists and going, really? Because, uh, um, yeah, we can find awful stuff that John Locke said about race and how he, you know, how his conception of self-ownership basically only applied to, like, British people of fair complexion and owner of, and ownership of property. But, um, but... You have to ignore what Hegel and Kant and and Schiller and I mean, there's almost nobody who who doesn't naturalize types yeah. um, and typologies um, in, in German idealism um, and project them back. And yes, you might have an ethical critique that's absolute to push back on um, to push back on your heuristics, but it it doesn't seem to matter that much. Well, I mean. I mean, what's crazy about this is that is that the 
you know, with, with Hegel, it's, I mean, it's there. I mean, people, people still read the, the lectures on world history and stuff. I mean, and, and, and this is the place where Hegel is talking about, you know, nothing happens in Africa and, and, and this sort of thing. And, but, but, but it's, and so people kind of know this about Hegel, but it, but it seems, and, and so now we're getting into the real issue, I think it, it seems that this has been kind of suppressed about, about Kant. And it seems, so Kant, Kant wrote more about anthropology and, ge- and, and geography than he did about anything else. Right. And, he wrote way more about race than Hegel. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so, so Kant, let, let's put it this way. Kant is interested in, in race in the same way that Newton is interested in angels, right? Like, like mm-hmm. we remember Newton for, for whatever physics stuff, but what he really cared about was angels, right? I mean, that was what he was obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And, and with Kant, it's similar. I mean, I mean, Kant was really obsessed with race science and, and well, for reasons I'm going to kind of try to lay on the table. I mean, I mean, his 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 philosophy really arose out of the problems that he was trying to think about when he was when he was looking at, at anthropology and, and race science. And and so and so this is part of the so, you know, so it seems that after World War Two, um, Kant's writings on race were kind of suppressed to, to the extent that people who are Kant scholars are surprised. By, by even the idea that Kant and race would be a topic, right? So, so people who have done this work, like Emmanuel Eze and uh, Bernasconi and some other, they write about this, right? I mean, when they were kind of first uncovering, I don't know, 80s, 90s and stuff, they were uncovering some of these writings that it seems like everybody knew about them before the war. And after the war, everybody forgot about them. And, and they're bringing them back up. Um, and, you know, but, but what's interesting is that, so everybody acknowledges this now, right? They, they kind of won this point. Like, look, I mean, it's, it's hard to deny. I mean, Kant, there's voluminous writings in which Kant, you know, there, there, there's a text in which he instructs you on the, on the best way to whip your slaves and other things like this. I mean, and, and it's, it's, I mean, we could, we could go through and we could read stuff from Kant and, and it's all horrible, but so, so the, so the, so the defenders of Kant in academia have been forced to kind of admit this, right? They, they, uh, is undeniable. Um, but, it's interesting that there's sort of been sort of a standoff, which is around the question of, okay, so what does this mean for like Kant's philosophy? Um, like, does it matter that he's a racist? Um, or is, is, is there like his empirical interest, which is racist and his pure philosophy and it's not, and, and, and it's, and it's fine. We can still be Kantians without, without worrying about all of this Kant stuff. Um, and, and this is where the, the debate kind of is right now. Um, but what's, uns- I mean, I think, so if, so what I want to go on to say is, I mean, I think there's reasons. I think we actually understand Kant better as a thinker. Like if our goal is to read Kant and understand what's going on in Kant's head, I think we understand Kant a lot better if we understand. It's easier to do for one thing, but go ahead. <laughs> what's, what's easier to do? Understand Kant as opposed to Hegel, but. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, let's go. I mean, Kant is really not that complicated of a thinker. I, right. Um, Which is why the analytics kind of like him. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It's kind of, I mean. To 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 piss on my own stopping ground, yeah. but since that's what we're doing these days. Yeah. But um, but yeah. So, how do you think this is more categorically related? How how is this 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 obsession with anthropology and 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 proto race science and all that? Yeah. Um, crucial, analogous to the way that yeah we forget that you know calculus is basically so that. Newton could calculate both money and angels and, <laughs> right, uh, right. and when the end times were supposed to happen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, so it's, so it's funny. So I want, I want to talk, uh, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the, 
So there, there's a defense strategy that the Kantians have to 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 apologize for Kant, given this. And I'll, I'll, so I'll talk about that, and then I'll go into okay, what is okay, what is Kant actually doing here, right? And and their defense strategy is to say basically, um, Kant is so so they they always begin by telling you what a great philosopher Kant is. Like all of the essays open this way, they're like Kant is the greatest philosopher of all time, blah 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 blah. Uh, um, and then but then they go on to argue basically that. Really, Kant's philosophy uh, implies everything that we believe in our common sense, right? So everything that we believe in our kind of our post-war liberal common sense is actually what Kant's philosophy really implies. But Kant himself was like too stupid to realize this. So, so Kant, his entire life, has this, has this philosophy and, and, and really the implication of it is post-war liberalism, but, but Kant didn't, under, didn't understand that. He wasn't like clever enough in order to correctly apply his own principles. So all of the, all of the defense strategies take this, take this tack basically to say, to say we can underwrite our beliefs using Kant as an authority and, and using Kant as an authority, we're going to, we're going to dismiss what Kant actually thought, right? So that he's, he's incompetent at applying his own principles, the stuff that he thinks about everything else. So I, I think if, if, if we want to say, okay, let's give Kant some credit, like Kant actually is, maybe he's overrated as a philosopher, but he's not an idiot. He's, he is, if there is some glaring discrepancy between this philosophy he obsessively has and all of these other things he obsessively talks about, like, let's assume there's some connection there. And I think the way to understand the connection is that Kant, so Kant doesn't understand what the purpose of human beings is, right? He, mm. he thinks, he thinks that we need to, so, so he's in some of his writings, he says this, right? He's, he talks about like the Tahitian Islanders or something. And he says, he says, I don't see any reason that they should exist. Um, so Kant is faced with basically human diversity, right? He, he's, he's obsessive. He, he's obsessively reading all of these travel reports and everything. And, 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 and he's obsessively contemplating human diversity, right? But of course, Kant thinks, and his, his point of his own philosophy is that bef- we have to have an idea that we reach out of pure reason first before we can understand the world we need some sort of pure rational principle in order to to judge the world um and so kant really develops his the point of the critique of pure reason is to develop a a theory of a pure rational being that we can use to then, to then judge empirical humans on whether they live up to it or not right so 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 you brought up the is ought distinction and there is an is-ought distinction in Kant, right? And it's actually fundamental to his second critique because, because there's, there's the is that humans are as they exist, empirical humans, which for Kant are the objects of anthropology. Those mm-hmm. are the humans that exist. But that's not the question. The question is, what should humans be? So we need a theory of what humans should be in order to live up to their concept as rational creatures and that's what we're going to do in order to judge empirically existing humans, um, whether they live up to that standard or not. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think the point here is that if we don't, if we don't begin by thinking that's necessary, right. If, if we're not trying to judge empirical humans to decide whether or not they live up to the concept of being human, whether, whether they fulfill the purpose of humanity or not, then there's mm-hmm. then there's no motivation to want to do what Kant did in the first place, right? So so in in Kant, and and we I I I have I brought some receipts if we want to look at the text. I have a folder full of screenshots of Kant if, if you don't believe me. But the I mean in in groundwork of metaphysics of morals, 
he, he begins by saying, basically, well, the only ethics that are worth anything are, are the ethics that have come from a pure origin. So we have mm-hmm. to have, the, you have to have the dignity of a pure origin that's going to give us the, 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 the foundation of ethics. And we're going to use this in order to judge whether human beings deserve happiness or not. Um, and, and this is the purpose of the project. And so, and so Kant, Kant begins by setting up a value op- hierarchy, right? That purity is good and beautiful and mixture is bad and ugly. And this is what motivates the project. But if I don't ex- take that on board, then I have no reason to even want to keep reading the book after that. There's no, there's no reason to want to be a Kantian. That's, that's the reason that he gives. But he also doesn't justify it. In the in in with the rigor that he demands of everything else in his theory, right? He doesn't he doesn't derive for me why purity is good and is the reason is the ground of dignity and happiness. All he does in in, in his writing is kind of summon up his disgust at at mixture and popularity, and then ask me to assent to it. And and it's only once I do that that I can that I can then begin to you know, derive the rest of the system of transcendental idealism. Right. So, so I think there's a philosophical flaw here in his, in his thought, which is, which, which, which derives from this, right. Sort of there's this arbitrary transcendental disgusted mixture that makes the whole thing possible and and necessary. I mean, it's interesting because it arrives that again, it seems to emerge out of that platonic, you know, obsession with pure forms and pure types. Um, But there's kind of a double move there. So I can get to what I meant when I, when I said like he conflates the is because the purity distinction is a conflation of the is difference. There's a hidden value there. Right. Right. Yeah. Like that yeah. is the philosophical error. So he's insisting that there isn't, you know, he's not going to fall into that, that stuff that Hume criticized those measly French people for. Um, <laughs> and Kant was definitely engaged with Hume. So he, he's going to accept the Israel distinction, but because of his obsession with pure types and because he hides the fact that that purity involves a normative judgment in the initial instance, he's actually both trying to have his cake and eat it too in regards to normative descriptive distinctions, right? So so yeah. I, I definitely see the problem there. Yeah. Um it's also interesting that you you focus on the fact that while everything is supposedly derived from pure positive principles, like the categorical imperative, which is this, you know, this law that even Kant's own drawing up of leads to logical paradoxes nearly immediately, um, as far as the way the categories go. Um, but when you look at it in terms of disgust, and you're realizing, oh, all this is a justification. For valorization, for for trying to prove kinds of disgust and 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 uh, basically psychological holistics and cultural norms, but to 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 make it seem like it comes out of a place of absolute reason, um, it really it paints the project in a fundamentally different light, um, and you see the post hoc argo procta hoc nature of a lot of the entire edifice um which is interesting because actually i know a lot of anti-kantians who don't portray this this way they even they don't go into where khan is deriving like you know his universal types are 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 that that much they just mock the idea because it leads to a logical paradox yeah yeah so i mean i'm 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 not playing gotcha with Kant like he's he's a paradox like i 
I think I think we have to understand what motivates his his thinking. Like I don't know. My, in my I read philosophy like a literature student, right? I mean, philosophy to me is just a genre of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm mostly interested in like what story is being told here, right? I always frame things in terms of narrative. So I want to know what story Kant is telling, right? And 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 for this, this is part of why I'm unsympathetic to other kinds of attempts to 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 save Kant, where it says, well, okay, well, we can just sort of, Kant is just kind of a bundle of propositions, and we can kind of take the ones we like and discard the ones we don't like, and, and, and that's fine. But, but when you think about it that way, you're, you're, not, you're not asking, what, what kind of story is, what kind of story is Kant telling, right? What kind of narrative is he setting up? And, and, and I think that is dangerous, because you, then you can lose track of, well, you might be like reperforming that same narrative without realizing that that's what you're doing. Um, so I think that's so, and, and I think like you know when we understand the story that Kant is telling, like you know we have to understand why Kant thinks that we can't learn about ethics from anthropology, right? And and and, and what he means by that just the empirical study of human and human society, like we can't learn about ethics from that because it's going to taint us, right? I mean he really uses this language like it's going to taint our the dignity of our pure origin, and 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 so if you have like if you have a reading of Kant's ethics that doesn't begin by saying, well, like the story that Kant is telling is that we're disgusted by the sub objects of anthropology and empirically existing humans disgust us. And, and we need some kind of pure concept that we can judge them with um, and, and to determine whether they're really living up to, to the purpose of humanity, right? Cause Kant believes that the human species has a purpose that needs to be fulfilled. I'll talk, I mean, I could talk more, that, that's where our story is going, right? But, it, right. but, but I, yeah, but, but I think it's like, yeah, I mean, again, you know, you gotta, you gotta like, and, and also I think Kant would be unsympathetic to this, right? Because Kant thinks you, there has to be this idea that, that, that we have first that then determines everything else that we can, that we can think or experience. And, and, and when you reduce Kant to just kind of a, a set of propositions other than a story, you're, you're, you're not asking, okay, like, but what's the idea that Kant is talking about mm-hmm. here? And I and I and I think that the that the idea or the story that Kant is setting up it really is inextricable from white supremacy. Like there is no non-white supremacist reading of Kant. Like that's my that's my view. Um, um, would you go into? I mean, there seems to be lots of kinds of supremacy. Actually, you're detecting here. Would you go into uh, the white supremacy argument, and then also maybe the other kinds of obscured relations that he's hiding? Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean, you implied one in the beginning, like that, that by naturalizing debt, you actually hide that there's a differential in power for how that debt arose and how that credit arose. Right. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. yeah. Well, so part of the, part of the line of thinking that's led me here, you know, is, is, I mean, partly thinking that the Marxist theory, um, is inadequate for thinking about race. So I'm definitely somebody who thinks that race is not a modality in which we experience class. I don't think that, that is the case. Um, and I, and I, and so I think that like Marxist um, theories that try to understand race purely in terms of labor power, right? Differential prices of labor power or something like this, I, I think are missing something that is connected with the way that Marxists miss finance, right? Because I, so I think that race structural racism is, is in many ways a financial phenomenon um, that, in, that in, so if, if we think about um, racialized subjects, particularly black subjects after pseudo emancipation as, as, as part of the role that they play in political economy is, is as being the bearers of bad debt, right? That, that is, 
and 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 there are I won't get into it too much, but I mean, there are ways in which when we kind of understand how how credit money works, right? We can then reframe this to say, well, actually, white the system of white supremacy uses black people as money, right? They they actually are uh, a way to, to to generate monetary assets. This is true in slavery, and then the the argument would be, well, there's there's elements of this of the system of this logic that persists even after formal emancipation. Um, and, and so understanding black people as structural bad debtors in political economy requires us to kind of go beyond some Marxist analytics. This is sort of the, the, the thing I was thinking through. Um, and, 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 and so, and so that's why, you know, it, that's connected to the stuff about debt abolition and all of this. And I lost my train of thought. So respond to what I said, and I'll remember what I was going to go next. Yeah. Um, so, so there's definitely a relation of power being obscured, and I think this is maybe the better way to understand it from your from your perspective. Because if we don't if we don't want to, you know, and I also agree with you when you look at the history of race, it's co-emergent with modern capitalist notions of class, but can't really be reduced to it. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, for example, if you look at like modern monetary schemes versus uh, the emergence of transatlantic slavery, modern monetary schemes actually come later. Um, and, I, and I don't mean like modern monetary theory. I just mean like money as it exists now. Right. Um, and, and similar with mercantilist credit organs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but I also, I always like to use when you want to see the raw, the raw ass- assertion of what debt and credit actually are. Um, look at Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and and yes, there's class elements to that. That's undeniable. But the, the racialized element, which actually was explicitly used to keep a class element from developing, but was separate from. Like, um, b- particularly because you weren't proletarianizing already proletarian uh, proletariat import labor from the European colonies, but you sure as hell were, were proletarianizing. We're not even talking about peasants. We're talking about people who were essentially hunter gatherers forced to, to claim parcels of historic land and then forced to pay for it in a foreign currency um, at reduced wage weights at near slave, uh, near slavery conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the point here is that is that, well, in, enslaved people uh, are not only laborers; they are laborers. But in addition to that, they're also capitalized assets. And mm-hmm. so, and 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 so, the problem is that the Marx theory be, assumes that workers are not capitalized assets. That 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 what's being capitalized is fixed capital, and variable capital is not capitalized. That's sort of an assumption of his theory. Um, but but the problem is, well, when you're when you're thinking about a system based on the enslavement of people. Uh, you're also these people can be capitalized and they and so they 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 play a role that is neither variable nor fixed capital in terms of Marx and and so and so what do you, what do you do then right mm. um, you, you see, see Marx has always treat them as fixed capital like yeah but they're Marx also variable like, capital <laughs> yeah I guess you're right I mean like if you look at it like from those pure definitions when I really think about it the cost the the cost of maintaining slaves is very and you can underfeed them. So yes. you can't treat them the same way you treat machine inputs. Yes. Um, yes but yeah. they also are not free labor, and the the variable doesn't work anything like a variable in a in in, in exploiting free labor. Yeah. 
Oh, I actually right. even thought about that problem. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> um, so, so, so that, so that's a deep problem, and it's and it's a big problem that well, it begins, it begins to really be a problem at, towards the end of Kant's of Kant's career. I, I need to look more into the exact details of this, but my understanding is that I, I believe there to be a kind of financial bubble in slave assets in the early 19th century. So, I, I think that part of the, the 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 problem that we're looking at when when we're looking at the run up to the American Civil War i mean so i mean i mean enslaved people are being are literally being securitized and and turned into mortgage backed securities and mm. and marketed to german institutional investors like does that sound familiar Amer- yeah. you know i mean it's literally what happened before 2008 um it's, it's exactly the same kind of financial instrument so this is one that i i have not looked into all of this in detail yet it's one of the things i might agenda to find out more about but but we see this in so like Olada, there's hints if you read Olada Equiano's interesting narrative, which is contemporary with Kant. Um, there's there's some hints at this. I think uh, I might talk more about him in, in a minute. Um, but anyway, so so this is kind of the problem that led me to. But but okay, I want to go back to you. You mentioned stuff about what Kant is concealing, right? So so here I want to go into maybe the next next part of it, which is that. So I, I was turning all this stuff over in my head, you know, and I and and Kant was has really been on, on the back burner. It's like it's not what I've been mainly thinking about, but it pops up every once in a while, and every and I get mad about it every time it does, and then I I go read Kant again, and I've I've been reading the secondary literature, I've been reading this debate and stuff, and and I in the course of of I, I began to suspect, right? I, I was I was reading this thing, and I was like, you know what? I actually don't think that chattel slavery can be prohibited. Uh, actually, I, in in the system that Kant has is has laid out, I actually think that I was like I was like wait a second, like if I tried to mount an argument for why like chattel slavery was was against Kantian ethics, like could I do it? And and what I what I discovered is that I well, I really actually don't think you can. I think that Kant intentionally made this very difficult, and and it's tricky. There's there's places in his text where he almost looks like he's doing it, and 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 the Kantians grab onto a few moments and they try to. They, they 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 try to do this, but if you but if you well if you look carefully, what they are doing, what most what many Kantians do when they when they read this is they ignore a distinction that is made very early on in metaphysics of morals, and that is in fact central to Kant's entire thought, which is the difference between phenomenon and noumenon, right? So you might think so if Kant says something like this, right? You have to honor the humanity and everybody else or whatever. This is one of the categorical imperative things, right? Well, doesn't that mean that you can't enslave people because, because you, well, he says, he says you must treat the humanity in others as a, as an end in itself rather than a means to an end. Okay. So doesn't that mean that you can't have uh, chattel slaves because, because then you're using other people as a, as a means to an end. Well, okay. But let's remember that in Kant, the whole point is that on the one hand, there's phenomena and on the other hand, there's noumenon and those are very different things. And very in the in the first first chapter of Metaphysics and Morals on like the second page, he, he says, well, there's homo noumenon and there's homo phenomenon, right? So there are some people who appear to be human, but just because they appear to be human doesn't mean they're human. That's the whole point of Kant, right? We have to know whether they are homo noumenon, whether they are really human. And how do we do that? Well, we have to construct a theory of pure reason and we, and we use that to judge them about whether they live up to it. And if, and if they do, then they're homo noumenon. And if they don't, then they're own, then they're homo phenomenon. And, and, and Kant says, well, some, 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 you know, some entities appear to be human, but, in, but in fact, they're nothing but an appearance. And so if, if you, if you begin with this theory, well, 
okay, then go look at everything Kant says about slavery, okay? Mm-hmm. And the only times that he's placing limitations on slavery, right? So, so Kant says every, every human is born free, right? And so you can't, and so he says, if you're enslaved for a crime, right? So Kant believes penal slavery is, is, uh, is ethical because, because you've committed the crimes. But he says, well, but if you've committed the crime, then, then you can't pass down the status of servitude to your children because, because all humans are born free. Well, okay, if you ignore the appearance reality distinction, then it sounds like he's prohibiting chattel slavery. But if say I, you know, say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Kantian in the, say the, you know, the Confederacy wins the civil war and, and there's post Confederate, there's Confederate Kantians and they're trying to use Kant to justify their, their society. Well, they could do it. They say, they say, well, you know, black people just appear to be human, but they're not actually human. And, and why aren't they human? Well, because they don't look at them. I mean, they don't know how to use pure reason and, and they don't, and they don't behave ethically. And, and so they're not really human. And so none of this stuff applies to them. If, if, if you say, well, you know, some humans only appear to be humans, others are really humans. And then, and then we justify this, then, then you can defend it. And, and, and if you say, well, I'm going to be a Kantian, but I'm going to assume that everything that looks like a human actually is a human. Well, then there's no reason to want to be a Kantian because, because distinguishing those things was the purpose of the theory. And that's what he says in the very beginning of the, of the text. Um, so you would have to find a totally unkantian reasons to be a Kantian. At which point, why bother being a Kantian? Why not just make your own philosophy that, and tell a different story that begins in a different place? Okay. So why do you think there's such a, a, a refusal to abandon the Kantian form of German idealism? Yeah, well, so I think that, I mean, so as I've been thinking about, you know, like the, the emotional response from people that I got when I, for raising these things, um, and, and, and it confused me because people were, people were, were, well, people were calling me, I mean, one thing that people called me was undergrad. People, like three or four different people said the same thing. They said, you're being an undergrad, which is, I have some thoughts about that. that mm. and, 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 and then they were saying, you know, but then they would present to me readings of Kant that were clearly, that were like refuted on page one, right? So there's, there's a Rawlsian Kant that some people believe in, which is the utilitarian Kant, which is like, well, really what the categorical imperative says is that if everybody did it, then we'd all be better off. It like reduces categorical imperative to a Nash equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Kant hates this because Kant says, you know, we can't have any consideration of ends in, in, you know, he's, he's very clear that the categorical imperative is not a Nash equilibrium. So, so they, they would call me undergrad and then they would present these re- this reading of Kant. And I'm like, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, I was just looking at the book. It doesn't say that, you know? Um, and, and whenever people start saying like the same phrases to me, I start to, I'm, I'm like, okay, it's like not really you talking. It's some kind of brain worm inside you that is. And, and so like, what's going on? Well, I think that like part of this, anger about Kant is this idea, well, first of all, Kant kind of like is the foundation of 200 years of Western European philosophy. Everybody's responding. Yeah, but both continental and, and, and analytic. He's one of the few figures um, in the after the emergence of German idealism that you can refer to on both sides. Yeah, exactly. He's the last universal Western philosopher, right? So mm-hmm. he's, the la- he's the philosopher who guarantees that there's a coherence to Western thought, right? That there is a West because if there's not Kant, then, then what common reference do we have? Well, it's not really clear. So that's, this is one kind of issue. I, I, I think there's another kind of issue. Like people seem to think that Kant is like, 
is like he's like the catacomb, like holding back the you know like the reemerge. He's he's like holding back chaos from 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 Europe, and and that if and that if like we can't ground ourselves in Kant, well then we don't. Well, we don't really have a claim to being universal, right? I mean, I mean, it's Kant that anchors this claim that says, well, the you know the cultural production of the of the West in the nineteenth century is like the basis of universal reason, uh, and and it kind of underwrites this. So, I, so I think there's a way that that Kant is understood as kind of underwriting post nineteen forty five world order. Um, and people, people are anxious that if you pull that rug out from underneath, um, then, 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 then where, where do we go? And, 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 and in a way, I also think this anxiety, this gets us into, into maybe the next section of the topic. I, I think there's also an element of Islamophobia going on here. Um, mm. so, so I think that in, in this desire to cling to Kant as the guy who can underwrite, you know, whether he got the details of it right or not. Well, he underwrites the idea that we could have us have a have a have a universal claim to world civilization based on our capacity as 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 beings who can access pure reason. And I and I think this is threatened in some way by well by black people and by Muslims who are who are in some ways overlapping categories. And 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 so so I kind of raise this topic by saying, look, I mean, um, so Kant says. In order to ground morality, we have to have this categorical principle. And this categorical principle is accessible to any being with pure reason. And, and he also thinks it's fairly trivial, right? He thinks it's actually pretty easy. Kant always says this. He's like, I can see in an instance, right? I can immediately see that such and such a thing is true. Um, and, 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 and so we have to be able to begin with kind of this abstract principle and then, and then derive from that, you know, you know real principles of, of, of practical reason. Um, most, the most important of which is, well, it is categorically wrong to make a lying promise, right? And, mm. well, the problem is that there is, in fact, an, an alternative claim to universality that holds something different, <laughs> right? So, so in, you know, is, Islam also makes a claim to universality, right? I mean, so if we ask, okay, what's the core, what's the core confession of faith in Islam? There is no God, but God and Muhammad is his messenger, like, does that violate the categorical comparative? No, no, it doesn't, right? I can I can will that that maxim should become a universal law without contradiction. There's no there's absolutely no contradiction in in willing that everybody should 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 submit, right? I mean, that's totally without contradiction. And and if I submit to to Islam, then well, I'm going to I'm going to follow what's in the Sunnah. And in the Sunnah, I mean, is there they have a theory of lying promises. Um, and, in, and in fact, there are situations in which making a lying promise is not only permitted, but is actually obligatory, right? So, so under Islamic law, you can be held liable uh, for failing to make a lying promise under certain situations. I mean, if, if, if the life of another Muslim is in danger, um, you are actually obligated to, to make a lying promise. I mean, there's different schools of Islamic jurisprudence, and, and, and they differ um, in, in sometimes the, the situations that they that they deem as, as, as qualifying for this. But my understanding is that they all agree on the principle of, of so that there is an, an obligation for a lying promise. And, and so, and so I think there's an anxiety here, which is like, there's another potential universality that comes to an opposite and incompatible conclusion from this framework that you're trying to forward. Um, and it, and it, and it has, it has consequences for the politics of creditor debtor, 
class politics. You know, it has it has lots of consequences, and 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 you can't really refute that, right? So Kant Kant is clear that there can be only one reason. There can you know so Kant Kantianism really has to make a claim to being the universal religion that that all beings, if they're rational beings, have to live up to, and so. There is not only is there no Kantianism that is not white supremacy. It's, it's also necessary to be an Islamophobe if you're a Kantian. Otherwise, you're inconsistent because 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 well, I mean, Muslims by confessing faith in Islam and following Islamic law are are saying that they're, that they're going to violate the law of pure reason as 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 it is presented by by Kant. And and I think that's a and so and so and I, I mean I take Islam seriously. I mean, and so if I entertain Islam as something serious that I should consider their position. I, I find an alternative universality that, that draws incompatible consequences to Kant. And, and well, I mean, I mean, Kant says that, that there has to be one universal sovereign that's going to, that's going to arbitrate over all of these things. And so, and so where are you left? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but I mean, it is interesting. I mean, just historically, if you talk about, the historical emergence of race, and now I'm not coming down on on Kant here, but like it is tied to the ending of a social modality, um, an entire Christian superstructure. Like you, literally. Yes. I mean, we we know this textually. the The Byzantine Empire falls. We have the Pope using the word European for the first time in print. Um, Within 300 years, we have the word white used to ex- to be able to in- keep importing Africans who are Christians because under pre- previous slavery and just war mandates, you can't enslave Christians and you definitely right. can't participate in, in a slave trade with an, with an enemy power, be it Islamic or, or, or pagan, um, and give them money for Christian slaves. But you can once you invent a new racial category. The racial category itself expands and contracts actually based on religious notions so when they thought they could convert china um asians were white and then after after the matteo ricci uh stuff fails we start seeing the development of the concept of yellow um which was not there for the first 300 or 400 years 300 years of, of race talk and and you know you don't have to i you don't have to even get into stuff like crt critical race theory to know this like this is pretty well accepted um there are i mean it's not that there's no talk of skin color in the ancient world like the like the greeks talk about black skinned white skinned and yellow but their yellow means is germans so they mean blonde so it's <laughs> right. it's like um Xanthus, yeah yeah um yeah. but it's in general in the ancient world it's not that big a deal we see yeah. it emerge um, and so it wouldn't surprise me that also you see like you know, the, the whole to uh, Assad, you know, critique of secularity being that like it is because of its roots in the Enlightenment and particularly in uh, laicism that there is a that even in rejecting religion, it does so in a specifically Christian way yes. that is disproportionately punishing of non-Christian culture cultural backgrounds um yeah and yeah i will say marxists actually don't usually know what to do with this because the whole so many people take the uh everything solid melts into air so literally that they don't realize like 
hey, religious cultures actually really do change the way even like capital works in certain countries that, on the margin. Like the 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 larger the I, I, the larger imperatives of capital are pretty much consistent, but there's big differences and stuff like labor relations, uh, intermediaries. Um, what it's okay to do, what it's okay to ask for, how you can ask for it, stuff that actually does affect your daily life in pretty realistic and important ways, even if it's super structural. Um, and actually, I would go so far to say that even in Marx, if you're really consistent on that metaphor, a lot of that stuff actually is down to relations of production, so it isn't super structural. Um, but we right, can get lost right, in that. Because- because 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 the law organizes relations in society and and these things these systems are systems of law i mean the, you know right I'm, I'm it, maybe it does kind of get resist. weird <laughs> it does kind of get weird when people like have to point you know talk about legality and class origins and the class nature of the state and law um which yeah. you know, if you you know my dispute with mmt is i think some of them are naive on the on on what the state is and means but um no <laughs> um and they're like it's about an ethics of care sure buddy right yeah uh, well, that's we don't even, that's <laughs> just embarrassing stuff i mean this but, okay but, but I, I think you've hit on the key of it right which is that which is that really what kant does is he secularizes christianity and 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 he turns christianity into the the legitimacy of pure reason which which Kant thinks is is only embodied by white people right i mean i mean this is what he thinks kant goes through various theories i mean uh, about, about so okay so, so to go back to something i mentioned earlier right i mean it's very clear uh, and the text i recommend here to read if you if you really want to see like this is the closest thing to like kant's like uh like scooby-doo villain confession i think really is this is this essay that's called a uh, it's called universal history with a cosmopolitan aim and 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 this is where he well i mean he, he really lays out very clearly that 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 the purpose of humanity is is only something that exists at a species level and not at an individual level, right? So it's it's humanity is a is an aggregate concept, not an individual concept, and and the purpose of humanity is to is to live up to its concept of being of of being a purely rational animal, and and the problem is for Kant, well, uh, only white people are are actually capable of this. They're only the, they're the only ones. So all humans have the potential for rationality. Um, in them, but but Kant thinks that well, the, the 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 colored races of the world have degenerated from from Adam and Eve. So so Kant basically thinks that all humans are are born white, originally white, but that they but that other races have degenerated because of the effects of climate on them and stuff. And, so, and, and what, you know, yeah. So like a naturalized version of stuff like uh, Hebrew Islamism or pre seventy one Mormons or. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It's very much like that, right? It's it's very much like myth of ham kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? And 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 you know, and Kant even says like he says such he he Kant thinks that literally all human babies are born with white skin, uh, but that but that black babies um, are only black on their genitals when they're born, and then it gradually spreads to the rest of their body, right? So 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 Kant he, he says this, this is what he thinks. Okay. Uh, and not from and, observation, I'm assuming. Um. No, no, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that Kant never met a black person. I mean, mm. I, I don't. I mean, he 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 reads because you know he he reads this travel literature and stuff. That's that's the basis of all of his of all of his and novels even. You know. Um, but so so he thinks that 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 the 
you know, the essence of the human animal is that it has the capacity for reason, but that, but that this capacity, this potential is, is not necessarily realized or realizable in all empirically existing humans. And, and, and there's an additional, you know, and, and, and there's a problem because humans have degenerated um, because of the effect of climate on them at, at different points. He, he contemplates different solutions. I mean, at one point he contemplates like breeding black people out of existence. So, so Kant is not, he doesn't believe in the one drop theory. He, he believes that basically after six generations, if you bred black people with white people, they would disappear or something like that. So, so he contemplates breeding them out of existence. He contemplates various things. Um, but, but Kant really, so Kant thinks that the, you know, the purpose of the human species is to realize its potential as a rational being. And that, and that this is the purpose of, well, well, this is what it means to treat humanity as an ends in itself, right? So you could actually read, if you read Universal History with a Cosmopolitan Aim, as this. So I, I like to imagine that I'm a I'm a Confederate Kantian, right? After the Confederacy wins the war, and I'm I'm I work in the university, and I'm justifying, I'm explaining why Kant justifies the Confederacy in the same way that liberals today explain why Kant justifies everything they think. Um, you know, I, I, I could say, well, well, actually, we, we need to perpetuate um, chattel slavery of black people because this is helping us realize our purpose as rational beings. Right. I mean, you could you could say, well, you know, you could just put on your Aristotle hat, like, right, like, 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 or, you know, this is like it's like, well, you know, we need freedom from labor in order to be rational. And, and, and our slaves are helping us do that. And, and plus, they're not really human because they only appear to be human because and, they don't have all the rational assets like we do, because, yeah. But they it gets worse. But it gets worse, right? And mm-hmm. and it gets worse when we think about what does Kant have to say about slave rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. What what would Kant say about the possibility of slave rebellion? And and here I think is where things get really diabolical, right? Because suppose that enslaved people want to revolt and free themselves. Um, what is the consequences of that for the rest of the world? Well. Once we understand that enslaved people are the collateral for the financial system, if enslaved people want to emancipate themselves, they're going to cause a destruction of the credit system because they're no longer going to be there as collateral. You're, 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 and, and what that means is that they're actually interfering with the ability of rational subjects of white Europeans to fulfill their con- promises to each other. Right. So say I promise to sell you my slave and then the slave revolts. Well, now I'm not fulfilling my promise to you anymore. And so actually that revolting slave is, is threatening the, the, well, they're, th- well, they're threatening a war that can't be contained. Right. So also, right. so Kant, Kant is, so, so Kant says, well, basically, um, you know, in order to make a peace treaty, you have to be able to trust the, the, the person that you're making the treaty with. And so if the person you're fighting is not rational, if they're not capable of keeping their promises, then you can't even, tr- it's the own, the war can only lead to extermination. And, and I, I'm confident this is how he would read a revolting slaves, right? I mean, I mean, the, not only are the revolting slaves threatening to interfere with the ability of white Europeans to fulfill their promises to one another, they're, they're also, you, we can't trust them. They're irrational. They're going, you know, um, they're, they're going to open a, a, a war that is going to lead to the to the annihilation of, of the human of the human race and and so and so we need to contain it right so so I think there's a way in which Kant's logic can be can be harnessed to basically make the argument that basically when slaves rebel they therefore prove that they deserve to be enslaved 
right? Because because they're, the very act of rebellion is a demonstration of their non-rationality and mm-hmm. thus their and thus their non-humanness and and thus and thus as he says in the groundwork, they they don't even deserve to be happy, and 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 they're also unworthy of dignity. Okay, and and he says he says in the kingdom of ends, everything has either dignity or a price. Okay. And so if you've proven that you're unworthy of dignity, you must have a price. I mean, those are the only two options. Either you have dignity or you, you have a price. And, and there are certain conditions uh, uh, that, that Kant has laid out for us about whether you deserve dignity. And if, and if you don't deserve dignity, then, the, then you either have to be exterminated or enslaved. Those are the only possibilities that are left if, if humanity is going to fulfill its, its, its teleological ends uh, and justify its existence. I mean, I mean, I mean, this is the logic of Kant's thought, and 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 I think he's kind of coy about. It. I think he's, I think he's, I think there's an element of esoteric writing in Kant's thought because because I actually think he doesn't know how the slavery question is going to end up because so so you know the, the the French Revolution abolished the slavery in 1794, which is basically like the year before Kant writes Perpetual Peace, um, and and I think he didn't really know how it was going to end up, and I, and I think Kant wanted to hedge his bets. I think Kant wanted to make sure that his his philosophy could be used either by by the, the by the victorious Confederacy or by the victorious abolitionists, and 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 that both of them would be able to justify their world order in in his terms. But I, but I think he preferred slavery. I mean, I mean, just well, just using the the logic of categorical imperatives. If you take rebellion as a category, rebellion as a quote legitimate authority. If everyone is allowed to do it, whatever the reason then it leads to social collapse, obviously, and Kant can't ever conceive of a possibility that social collapse could be just, although I hate talking about justice at all, but let's just let's just give it there, you know, for, for, for Kant thinking. There's no form of social collapse that could be just because it breaks relations and and hinders our ability to keep promises and 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 duties and thus our ability to have dignity. Yeah. Um, therefore it must be forever wrong regardless of if the reason why it would happen is other offenses against morality, which is also um, the basic logic of that stupid murder lie, you know, uh, right. Yeah. uh, You know, a lying promise thing that we talked about earlier, whereas um, Islam, but almost actually almost any um, virtue ethic set has, has modal and hierarchy has modal logics related to virtues and hierarchies related to virtues. So some virtues are greater than others. And some, and and you have multiple systems of reasoning depending on what the context is. That's even true in Christianity. Um, But uh, if you're trying to secularize Christianity, you can't admit that because it, it, it admits stuff like um, Mm -hmm. irrational divine revelation or, or you know something that implies that the world doesn't work rationally, which as as if you're if you're uh, an early German idealist, you can't have God doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. so facto, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, for Kant, you know, right? The the whole point is we need to justify why Christendom is legitimate without revelation, right? We we actually don't need revelation in order to justify the legitimacy of Christendom, and well. But but what I'm pointing out is that well there I mean there is a revelation in Kant and 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 the revelation in Kant is the disgustingness of black people I mean that has to be revealed to us 
in, in order to, to get the whole thing un, underway and, and that it's smuggled in. And that I mean, and the disgustingest of all non-white people actually would right, be the yeah, logical implication. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's but he's particularly obsessed with, with black people, right? But but I mean all, all I mean there there's a there's a hierarchy. Well he he's he hates it's 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 the it's the red men and the black men that are at the bottom of the of the hierarchy. He's got a whole system. I don't I don't know all the details. Right, right, right. But... Which, which you know, surprise, surprisingly, does not look that different from the actual social economic divides we see in the United States, um, and actually probably in Europe too. Although the quote "red man" is not really uh, a, a non-settler European issue. Um, so there we go. Right. Um, Oh, okay. So, I mean, I definitely see how this is a problem. Can you talk about how this affects other leftist thinking, though? Because most leftists do not see themselves as <laughs> right. Kantians. Like... Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I do think that I do think there is a strong element of Kantianism in 20th century academic Marxism. I mean, I mean, there is, mm-hmm. and I and I think it comes. There's it comes in partly through Weber, so so part of it is the is the Weberian influence on on Marxism, I think, right? So, yeah, so I mean, Weber late, that late middle SPA day turn. Uh, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I, being, a, I'm being a jerk, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> Weber. I mean, Weber was a was one of the. I mean, we forget this, but Weber was one of the non-Bernsteinian revisionists of the late SPA of the like uh, late. Early 20th century, but late as far as classical SPA day thinkers. Yeah, like he, yeah. he comes out of the SPA day. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, Weber's whole whole idea is that like he, he believes that like, the, you know, that, that uh, European modernity really is a rational society. It, he, mm. he thinks it's kind of bad, you know, I mean, but 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 he accepts that it's true. And yeah, it's and, and, dark Kant. Yeah, dark. Yeah, it's it's, it's Kant, but but he, he's against it. But he, but he thinks it's true. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um and and so Weber kind of thinks that white people invented rationality, right? O- only it's a problem for us. Um, and and so so there's that element of it. But I, but more troublingly is actually goes back to the money stuff. I mean, uh, which is that, well, I mean, Marxists really do believe that they have to derive a concept of value out of pure reason, and and they need to then apply this concept to history in order to interpret it. Otherwise, you're going to understand history wrong. I mean, I mean, they really think that there's that you know that there's there's a concept of value and they're going to derive it first and then they're going to then they're going to make history appear to them in 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 that in those terms uh whereas I, I you know i'm i'm an empiricist i think we should i think we should we should look at 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 at, at the facts as as we're able to find them and and we should be critical about the we should be critical we should be wary of the ways that our preconceived ideas shape what can appear to us and all of that but but like that's a problem for us, not a good thing. It's not. It's not good that we have an a priori idea of value that we can then apply to history. Um, actually, we want to. We want to look at history and try to use that to disrupt our our a priori notions of, of value and all that stuff. So, I, so I do think that there's a strong element of Kantianism in in well value form analysis and Marxism um, mm. because because I mean I mean you you know there's 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 nothing that you could empirically discover in the world that would that would threaten that analysis, which is also the case in Kant, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, Kantians don't even think, here's a, here's a wild thing, right? Is that Kantians don't even think that Einstein is a problem for Kant. In in fact, Einstein himself believed that he had destroyed Kant. I mean, I mean, he's, he, because, because, I mean, what did Einstein show? Well, he showed that we can, that we learned about 
space and time from experience. Um, and, and, and the Kantian's response to this seems to be basically like, well, um, like Kant just got the details wrong. So after we learned that space and time were different than we thought, we're going to go back and derive it a priori to match up to what we should have gotten right. So, but th- this, this doesn't make any sense. So I, yeah, this always reminds me of something. My, uh, uh, my, one of my key philosophy professors, um, Dr. Fernald, uh, who's now running an ethical consulting agency or something, uh, <laughs> used to tell me about about Kantians and, and Platonists and and even Aristotelians. He he told me that um, you know you can't take a, a philosopher seriously when they assert that because nobody holds those ep- those epistemic claims, and if they do and still try to maintain modern views of the world they're doing so by bracketing parts that are uncomfortable out of the system. And, you know, I've seen this with, I, I, you know, one of my bet is I, I don't have a hatred for Hegel, but I have always told, told people, if you don't deal with Hegel as a religious thinker, and if you think that yeah. you can do the Zizekian like bait and switch and say, he's not talking about um, metaphysics, actually not even ontology, that he's not talking about metaphysics um, that you can't, really understand him and to claim that it's just psychological is anachronistic and there's no re- and if you actually read what hegel says you have to ignore what hegel says about his own thought to right. to make those leaps and i think a lot of that happens with kant in regards to to the rational world being uh basically a form of predicate logic that that it, where everything is deduced from everything else and everything works off deductive logical forms and uh I mean, the one thing I will give analytic philosophy is it has realized in the, in the 20th century that that doesn't work. Like you literally everything eventually from that standpoint becomes circular. Everything becomes circular, like because you always eventually hit a preposition that you have no way to justify. And and, uh, you know, this is a crisis for for uh, analytic philosophy, I think, partly because they even though they realize that the deductive logic thing doesn't work that they don't really want to give it up because you know how can we do math out of non-quanta if we give up our ability to say that you can deduce stuff from other stuff and it makes sense um you know it's it's one of those debates i remember when i was an undergrad in philosophy um where you know i was learning about all these philosophical theories and i just remember hearing kant and going and then hearing hume and just like Hume's right. I don't even know like how you can argue that. Right. <laughs> like, like it's just like I can I can deduce from a, a series of deductions, and ultimately, but my primary assertion has to be just basically a leaf of faith. But I'm not going to say that because if I say that and admit that, then I've collapsed every other deduction that I've made. Like, come on. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so so you think that modern Marxism still has Kantianism, particularly in its obsession with value form and some of its ethical normative commitments and its relationships to like deducing theories of history from laws of history, and the laws of history aren't statistical, but yeah, I mean, I mean, axiomatical I think, in some way. But I mean, we also have to remember that you know what's the purpose of this of this value theory? Well, it's it's to it's to construct a narrative about about the direction of history. 
I mean, it's, it's the purpose of it is to locate ourselves in history. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that, I think that the, the secularization of Christian sacred history that Kant kind of initiates and it's carried on by Hegel is inherited by Marxists um, who, who see themselves as, as, as living after a fall and in anticipation of redemption. I mean, I mean, structurally it is Christian sacred history. And so you're saying what, Nietzsche had a point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean like, like in a way, like, like sometimes when I say this, people are like, Oh, you're, you're playing like cheap gotchas or whatever. But like, for me, that's like the nicest thing that I'm ever going to say about Marxism is that really it's a Christian heresy. I mean, and, and it's, and it's, and it's one Christian heresy in a long line of Christian heresies. Uh, that's, that's, that's nice, you know. That's that's the that's the nice thing about Marxism. <laughs> no, it it does make it. Um, part of me wants to defend elements of Marxism against against some of these claims, but some of this stuff I actually, in my experience, I have seen, where I have argued that like you can't deductively describe an economy based off of typologies that you just want to apply post facto. And I, I mean, my my favorite ones. I, and I'm I'm swiping at Trotskyist here, but all Marx all Marxist subcategories have done this. All right, they've just done it in different ways. But the Trotskyist one is most obvious. Um, what is the USSR? Is it a degenerated worker state? Is it state capitalism? Is it uh, yeah. uh, uh, bureaucratic collectivism? And you actually read the definitions, and if you read them closely, you're like, guys, you guys are arguing about something where, like, from your own definitions, these three conditions could actually simultaneously be true of one state because but you have asserted that the tep- the typology needs to be maintained um partly for like re- rhetorical reasons that you didn't justify logically um to the point that you can't even see that some of these criterion have completely different things that they're focusing on as the tripping criterion and then you get into points like when you argue about people about uh about the actual economy of the USSR, which, you know, I do have my own theory about it. I, I tend to believe that the, the description of it as a non-mode of production because it's fucking incoherent is probably closest truth. But um, you, you can tell that people are operating backwards. Like someone will say, okay, well, the USSR is state capitalist. And you go, why? Because it was producing value. Okay. Um why was it producing value? Because there was market forces. Were those market forces actually operating with, with uh, no price controls and free exchange? No. Was there even a singular market for, for currency in that? No. There was even, in most of the USSR's history, three different ruble trading points. Like, you had a different monetary system of exchange at three different levels. Um, now... I'm gonna have to figure that. I'm gonna have to look at this. I, I know nothing about this, but it's yeah. It's, but it, now, now but, you're part of my language. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's just like so. I went and just looked at this, and I was like, okay, from the standpoint of there still being markets and there still being value surplus produced that is uh, surplus labor that produces a surplus product that is being recommodified. That is true, but I can't think of a society that doesn't do that. And if you read the critique of the Goethe program. Marx no. mocks people people giving their full earning back to them by the, like he just like he just laughs at that because you, he he realizes that of course society would ultimately fall apart if no one shares the surplus at all and if you don't generate any because 
if you don't generate any surplus, everything goes back to the work to the to the workers themselves and what happens to anyone who cannot work. Well, I mean, but but the problem problem is here is you're they're they're idealists. They're doing idealism. They 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 begin with a concept and then they judge the word the world according to whether it lives up to that concept or not. And 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 yeah, nothing in the world lives up to that concept. That's because the the instantiation of the concept in the world is the telos of history, right? I mean, this is this all comes from Kant. I mean, it's 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 a spin on Kant. It's it's a critique of Kant. Yeah, it's it's a it's a critique of a critique of Kant. But it but there's there's still a path defendants there, and there's you know there's you're still taking on board certain kinds of assumptions, and and I think more importantly, certain kinds of narrative structures, right? And, and it, that I think are worth being skeptical of. It is interesting to compare like the emergence of other like. I've always wanted people to take more seriously like the way secular emergence happens in maybe Islamic culture, but even Islamic culture, if we're honest, are, are you know, the Christian or the post-Christian West, um, like envy and competition with Islamic culture. This may also be true in reverse, frankly, um, has partly to do with the fact it's so close to our, like it's close enough that we know the differences. Whereas well. if you look at, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I was, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, the the West is incredibly influenced by Islam. I mean, and, oh, yeah. and, and 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 it seems it seems that Christian Christian thinkers stopped quoting Muslims sometime around the 16th century. 16th, yeah, really 17th. late. Yeah, really late. And 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 I and so I it's something that I'm still thinking about. It's something I'd like to think about more. And and in particular, what I I want to do some research, and, and I'm gonna, I'm going to I want to look into. I feel like quit doing it even after the war stance between the two cult. The, if you look at like the idea of right, right, of Islam and Christianity at eternal war, the time well, that's, they quit, that's what the that's influence over. is happening. That's what the influence is happening. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. It's like, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're if you're sending a bunch of troops to the to the Holy Land, who are who are in many ways becoming assimilated to 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 the local Arabic custom. I mean, I mean, that's the war is when the influence happens. I mean, it's it's kind of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I want so I want to look at it. In particular, I want to look at um, Muslims in the early Atlantic world because I'm so I'm I'm really interested. So so we talked a little bit. I think you mentioned it before. This problem about about slavery and Christianity, which is that you're not supposed to enslave Christians, right? Yeah. Um, and 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 this is part of the pro. This is part of the reason that whiteness gets invented is because, well, if if you're white instead of Christian, then that that's that's a reason that you can that you can enslave your slaves. But I, I've been wondering. Okay, so why why did they convert the slaves to Christian Christianity in the first they place? They did. They didn't. It was that they were they were buying slaves from pagan and Arab traders, um, Muslim Arab traders who had enslaved Christians who were already Christians. Just, yeah, and they just didn't want to deal with that fact. Like like they didn't want to deal with like Ethiopians being traded yeah. um, as slaves, basically. Um, now. Yeah. But the, but the other option, but the other option was Islam, though, because because surely there must have been Muslims coming over in the, on the ships, too. Right. This is this is what I'd like to research more about. I don't know yet. Well, what's, what's interesting is, is. um, 
Muslims didn't engage with transnational naval power. So I actually, this is actually a, an area where I don't know as much because I know much so, about the land routes of of. Uh... So I know. Okay, so here's here's a data point, which is that which is that one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution was a was a man named Bookman, and that that means Muslim. So, 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 the, so the line of thinking that I've been pursuing, you know, is like if I'm a if I'm a slave owner in the in the in the 15th century or whatever 14th century what century are we talking about 15th 16th century, uh, who am I most afraid of? I think I'm most afraid of the imam on the slave ship who might who might organize the the slaves, and I would. Well, also, it's the only person who. who uh... Yeah, I mean, w- once you get there, although you would rather them be nothing at first. So you yeah, yeah, I, I'd rather them be nothing. language. Yeah, I'd rather um, them be pagans. I'd rather them be pagans, right? The pagans but, and, and and not and housing people who don't speak the same language together, which yeah, is what yeah. they normally did. But I mean, Islam did get Islam is in Africa would give them a, a counterforce. I mean, the 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 only thing I will say though um, is if you get deep into into race history in Islam. Um, there is also evidence concurrently to Europeans developing a concept of race. Um, high caliphate Muslims were doing it too. You see this in the writings of, uh, of Ibn Khaldun um, because they were also taking, taking Muslim slaves, but not of the same uh, sect as kind of a bad translation but but like they like you like some of them are taking shia slaves which is still right. kind of forbidden right um, right right yeah yeah yeah, yeah so, I mean, i'm not i'm not trying to hold islam out as as a, as a, as the as having everything right or whatever mm-hmm. but but but, no, but, but the point is it's at least, i take islam at least as seriously as i take kant and 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 if i put them both on the table and and take compare islam them more seriously right yeah oh so um i mean I mean, the one thing I will say is, um, is for example, in America, the construction of a like Judeo-Christian culture was always hilarious to me, um, because if you, and a, a lot of American Jews don't realize this until recently, but if you look at the history, the, not just the development of Jews in Muslim lands, but also like literally the structure of the religion is closer. Like the focus on law, the focus on oral tradition being an interpretation of law, the way the way hadith functions like uh Talmudic injunction and and uh rabbinic edict the way that judges are actually the supreme arbiters not priests um that you well, know well ne- neither i mean i mean i mean i mean judaism hasn't had a central authority since uh since the the 70s ad and <laughs> and islam never really had one so i mean there's no there's no there's nothing comparable to the to the to, to the Roman church. In the history. No, no, absolutely Either. nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, arguably the Caliph is uh, interestingly. Yeah. There's nothing comparable to the Roman church. There might be something comparable to the Eastern church. If you, uh, if the Caliph is a figure like the emperor, but um, that's kind of a rough thing, but I, I find this fascinating because um, I was going to say, we don't even study how wildly different this is. In cultures, even cultures that are highly influenced by things like Marxism, like, like I think it, you know, I don't buy the whole narrative that you see from this uh, the CPC that the 
that you needed to like 4,000 years of Confucianism for Marxist <laughs> communism to be possible because, you know, that seems like kind of laughable to me. But um, also because the more I study about Confucianism, the more I'm like, that's not a coherent religion. Like it's changed what it is many times in many epochs. Um, it's a very, since I mean, it has Confucius, it's, it's very secular. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. a, it's, it's, well, a, it's a secularism almost. I mean, it's a secular religion that occasionally has gods and sometimes doesn't, and occasionally has consistent rules and sometimes doesn't. Uh, it's, it's fun like that, but it's interesting when you look at, um, like what secularity looks like in different areas, because for example, yeah. South Korea is, uh, it's, it, it is on paper a more secular society than the United States. Um, but it doesn't, that secularity does not look or feel like Western secularity. And that is despite a strong influence of Christian missionaries. And in fact, what, what you actually see is um, Christianity taking the character of Confucianism um, and the other indigenous religions um, with filial piety and and stuff like that, and that carrying through to secular ethics um, in a way that that you wouldn't expect for a country that is a third Christian. Um, and and it was funny because I, I had a I had a Korean professor who would just tell me all Americans are really Protestants, whether they are or not, and all and all and all Confucians are really, I mean, and all Koreans are really Confucians, whether they are or not. Um, And and it was like, and, you know, I kind of laughed, but the more I stayed there, the more I saw the point, like, and, and it used to like muck with my, with my, with my ultra, my, my, when I first became a Marxist and was trying to hold the absolutely true orthodox Mm -hmm. line, um, would be like, okay, so if I say capital is world totality and all this stuff is epiphenomenal, but this stuff actually does affect like boss relations, legal structures, legal implementations of the law, how can I continuously assert that it's all just epiphenomenal? Um, yeah. Now, I realize that was a stupid, vulgar Marxist reading of even Marx, but it's a common enough one that well, people go, well, capital works the same way. And, and, and I will say like, yes, in the grand scheme of the way profit motives work, yes, but um, its construction varies wildly from place to place, and how, like, yeah. um, even in the terms of like how you would exploit someone. So, like, in in Korea, um, it is often seen as better to have, you know, a whole lot of people employed at a place inefficiently by our standards. And pay them very little. Um, so you know you and uh, this is this is what Arigi gets about it. Adam Smith in Beijing, which I haven't right read eight years, but this is the industrious revolution thesis, right? Right, and you know I I don't totally completely buy all of Arigi's categories, but it's just stuff that I saw, and even in stuff like like the way you set up community structures and and like how you show off ostentation and wealth and who's allowed to act like a boss and who isn't in what context it even varies between catholic cultures and protestant cultures like it's different right um i mean i i'm i I believe this totally i mean i I definitely think we're all protestants i mean and 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 i and, and and i think the reason for this is that is that you can you can you can take a narrative structure and you can you can replace the words in it but as long as you're still telling the same story it doesn't matter who the 
who the cast is, you know, and, 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 and that's a lot of what happens with, with this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, I mean, that, I mean, this, it's, it's a source of cultural creativity. I mean, you don't end up with exactly the same thing that you got before, but, but, you know, but I think it's you know, just because you don't have characters named like Jesus and God and your narrative anymore, doesn't mean you're not telling the same story. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, it does feel like a like a miseration is, and, and as a, as a structural story, Capital came in, um, you know, the, the, the interior of history is different lapses from primitive communism. Primitive communism probably is an ideal, but it was the best we had to ideal. It was close to species being. Uh, um, yeah. You have this, and then you have, you know, the conditions will get so bad that uh, the workers will necessarily um revolt now i will also admit in marx having read a ton of marx he's not consistent on that but when people tell me he never said it i can just be like no i can show you like this letter this letter this letter this letter this letter from 1850 where he said it explicitly and thought it was imminent like he thought it was going to happen by 1856 like you know and um well, look, I mean, this is, I mean, disappointed eschatological expectations are where, are, that's where religions come from, right? I mean, I mean, this is, his, his, this is Christianity too, right? I mean, I mean, the earliest gen- generation of, of the followers. Oh, yeah, it was Jesus. clear that they didn't believe that, that, that anybody was going to survive more than like yeah, 10 years. Yeah, and then, like, and then, and then, and then the religion gets created when you try to deal with the failure of, of your eschatological expectations. I mean, I mean, this is what's happened to Marxism. It's, it's obvious. I mean, yeah, well, to me, it's like where, you know, it's it's the one point that Karl Popper, who I normally think is a fool, <laughs> made, um, that I thought kind of sticks, is that Marxism really does have a research program, but as it gets frustrated, it it gives up on its research program and holds to its its categorical predi- predictions, which yeah. which is um and 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 not just like its categorical prediction about business cycles. Like it's categorical positions about the necessity of a specific group of people to do a specific thing, to bring it about worldwide in a very vague way. But but um, but, but this is this is this is where the Kant is, right? I mean this mm-hmm. this is because because Kant's whole thing is look, I mean I mean I mean the the human species has to realize its purpose and 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 the whole point is to identify the group of people who are going to be the ones who are the bearers of that historical mission. I mean, I mean, it's a different, it, this, it's this, it's the same story. I mean, there's different characters in the story and, and there's different other pieces of it, but, 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 but why should we believe any of that? Why should, why should we believe that there's a historical mission of humankind? I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that. Um, I have, I have much more mundane concerns, <laughs> you know, um, and so, and yeah, so I, but, but I think that's very difficult for people to give up on in is, is the idea that, that humanity has a historical mission that's, that's going to be fulfilled if, if only we can understand what it is and we can, we can, we can carry it out, you know? But yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things when you confront Marx, um, and I say confront as a person who probably still believes a lot more Marx than you do, but where where I, I do go to people and I was like, where's your workers movement? And they'll just be like, it exists. And I'm like, where's your workers movement? And 
Because, Vaughn, you're is, looking for the phenomenal workers' movement. They're talking yeah. about the noumenal workers' movement. <laughs> yeah, and then they'll be like, the workers' movement for itself versus the workers' movement in yeah. itself. And I'm like, so you're telling me that the for, that the for itself is not I mean, excuse me, that the, the for itself is not related to the in itself, that we could create a workers' movement out of the ontological being of communism without the workers that we've already argued are the people we have to have, not because of the ontological being of communism, but because of their position empirically in society um, to do it. You've had 150 years so even if you're right about the, the the machinations of capitalism and business cycles and and accumulation and monopoly capital, which I think Marx mostly is actually, um, it doesn't like your predictions about revolution. You have spent at least since the 1920s kind of spinning your wheels, coming up with new theories for why your prediction didn't happen, and they get more and more disconnected from empirical inputs. Like I actually understand why in, why during the long depression you would have thought capitalism was going to end very soon, even though it was also just beginning in most of the world. Yeah. Um, like, but the you know, yeah, and I, and I say this as a person who believes in things like the the, the tendency of the rates of profits to fall if you measure as you measure profits in commodity and commodity value and not currency, but. Um, there's all there's all kinds of parts of economics. I also feel Marx just doesn't really speak to that much. Like he's got several different theories of money, kind of. Um, and, well, and, you know, and, and, I mean, I think this gets us to the to the question of you know what are how do we think about what we're doing when we read these texts? I mean, I mean, what is what is our investment in 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 the text? And I and I and I think you know like I. Just like think about the thing that everybody says, you know, like this phrase people say, they say, I'm trying to understand Marx. You know, how many people have said that? Like, I'm trying mm -hmm. to understand Marx. I'm trying to understand Hegel. Like, why, why do we, why do we begin by approaching the text, assuming that our job is to try to understand? Um, I do think of Stephen Jay Gould saying that it would be a, a failure of science if we were still talking about evolution in terms of trying to interpret the textual exegesis of origins of the species. Yeah, well, I have my own thoughts about about scientists' attitude. To, I think I think scientists would do well to study the intellectual history of their own of their <laughs> own disciplines more than they do. I've 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 lived with biologists who have who have told me quite proudly that they don't read Darwin, and I always, or or even or even even who have who have who have reacted with scorn when I told them I was reading Darwin. I mean, I, I was I was working with one of my colleagues. We were we were kind of tracing this history of the species idea, like from Aristotle and Theophrastus and all this stuff through Darwin. And we were, we were reading this. And I, I told some of my biology uh, uh, roommates, and they were like, oh, we don't, real scientists don't read Darwin. I was like, I don't know. It seems like you're missing out. But um, anyway, but, 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 but uh, you know, it's, it's not that I think that I, I don't have, so I don't have this like progressivist view where it's like, Oh, we've advanced beyond Marx, and so now why he's been discredited or whatever. This is not my. I actually do think people should read Marx. I mean, I think that it's he's he's. You can't really understand the the intellectual history of economic thought unless you've read Marx. I mean, I think he should be on the syllabus. But 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 I I guess I guess you know my point is like why do we begin why do we why do we begin by assuming that that guy must be smarter than we are right I mean I mean why can't we approach books by assuming that we're equals with the 
with the author of the text. So like, so like why begin from the, this position of humility to be like, well, I have to try to understand Marx and it's going to be a lifetime, you know, a, a work of trying to, I mean, why can't we begin by saying, yeah, I mean, I mean, spend three months studying Marx and, and you'll probably pretty much understand it. And then you can, you can think about it and, and, and you can make use of it or you can, you can reject it or, or you can go other places from it. Right. I mean, so, so I'm, I'm very much, I guess, after after having spent almost a decade in in higher education in academia and all this stuff, I mean, uh, why why reverence? Why why Marx didn't approach text with reverence? No, and he actually didn't encourage people to approach him with reverence either. Right. So 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 why reverence? Right. I mean, I'm I'm against reverence. I don't I don't think we should approach whatever we have to learn from from reading these texts that we've inherited from this very dubious history of the last 200 years of European modernity. Right. I mean, I mean, no, nobody's innocent in this, in this history. And, 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 and that's okay. I mean, you know, the world is a violent place and I, I don't, I don't, you know, my, 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 I, I'm not, I'm, you know, yeah. Kant's a bad guy, but a lot of guys are bad guys. I, I just, right. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, but like, why don't we, why don't we say Immanuel Kant in the same way that we say Carl Schmitt? Right. I mean, when you, when, when you say I'm reading Schmidt, that means something. Right. And, and, and there's a certain kind of like thing with that. Like I, I all, my, my claim is really we should we should understand Kant in the same way. I mean, if you're reading Kant, it's like you're reading Schmidt and you need to be thinking about that. You need to be understood. Right? I mean, I, I mean, I think we can we can read text because we want to understand how how the enemy thinks. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is why I've been reading Kant. I mean, I've, I've been reading Kant like fairly intently. It makes me mad. It makes me angry. It really puts me in a bad mood because I hate the guy. I just I just despise him, but but I but I do want to read him because I I want to know how there's there's a logic you know I mean the enemy has a logic the enemy thinks thoughts and and if I understand that then I can I can I can fight the enemy more efficiently and 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 that might be a reason that I want to read these texts and everything yeah. so 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 I just you know why begin with I mean I mean reverence might be the end product of your reading but I but I I think there's 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 a pathology in the way that we relate to these texts. And, 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 and it's something, it's, it's something that kind of like the popular left has, has learned from the university in, in, in the way that, that the, the discourses of the popular left kind of trickle down from the university in a, in a certain kind of way. And they've, and they've learned to kind of, yeah, um, uh, perform this reverence. And, 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 and I think a lot of it has to do with anxiety, right? So like, if I'm anxious about, you know, say I enter into this world of online discourse and there's everybody's on there yelling at everybody else about how nobody understands Marx and they've all been doing this for 40 years. And, and there's all of these, and, and you get really anxious because you're like, Oh shit, maybe I don't understand Marx. And I, and I think you, 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 this performance of reverence is a way to deal with our own anxiety and feelings of inadequacy. But I, but I think you can actually just read it. I don't think it's that hard. Like, I, I don't think, I mean, there's problems in it, but the, you can kind of get the basic idea and, and you don't need to, you don't need to, perform this obeisance to the, to the text. Right. Well, it's, it's one of these things that I, that I find maddening actually is a lot of people who do have this, uh, this, this sake of reverence. It's actually very similar to Christians approaching the Bible. Um, uh, honestly, and I don't mean that in the, in, in the facile way. Oh, they're just religious. I mean that in the sense that like they, they've also been taught a hermeneutic and an exegesis um, before they approach the text that actually inhibits them from reading it. Yeah. Um, right. Yes, exactly. Because it's totally decontextualized. Um, and, and when you come with someone like Marx and, you know, I meant this as a person who will always argue like, this is not what Marx actually thought, but you know, 
that's actually a separate question than whether or not something is true, which people often misunderstand me when I say that. Cause I'm like, Marx, like I always say, I don't believe in the immiseration theory. Sis. I'm not sure Marx did all of his life, but he sure as hell did in the 1850s for sure. Um, and you know, I'm also not going to come up with some fancy like structural, uh, <laughs> uh, structural break w- based on ep- epistemology and some like uh, early 20th century notions of of physics and structural linguistics and try to just uh, assert my way out of these problems where there's inconsistencies, particularly. Who on earth would do that? Um, Particularly in areas where, like, um, we're deducing ourselves from unfinished text, which with Marx in particular is most of it. Right, right. Like, um, it is like reading breadcrumbs, and it's maddening when people treat exegetical claims as truth claims, because we should at least in our heads be like, okay, this is what this text says. Um there may be multiple readings of this text, but I, I do think there's been a tendency, um, unfortunately also from literary academia to, to approach uh, social meanings of text as if that meant that like, basically I can impose any narrative heuristic on it and it's still valid. Um, my, my favorite one is like literary readings of Das Kapital. And I'm like, why would you do that? Like yeah, they, don't, they only want to talk about the dancing tables and that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Jameson's guilty of this, right? Like, we're going to have a literary analysis of Das Kapital, and I'm like, right. yeah, why? Well, why, don't we, why don't we think about political economy? That, that seems more interesting to me. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's it's you know, so the other thing I kind of want I wanted to point out was, you know, so so this, the same person who I told me that, you know, the Kantians are going to destroy me, I mean, I mean, there's there seems to be some anxiety that people have who have gone through German studies programs about the Kantians. Apparently, there's some really mean Kantians and and who 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 seem to, to enjoy abusing grad students and making them feel stupid. Um, and they, they come out with this trauma around it. it. It's it seems to me, but but the same person and 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 I've I've heard other professors say this in in um, let me say for similarly reactionary purposes. But but they say things like you have to love the text, right? Or, or, or this one that I loved, which uh, is, is from a slightly different person, is say yes to the text, right? So there's this idea that they've, that, that this seems to be kind of common among a certain kind of, kind of uh, uh, type of, of literary, uh, te- you know, and, and, and what, are, what are they trying to do, right? They're trying to overcome the resistance of like 18 year old grad, you know, undergrads who think they know everything already, and and they don't want to read the text because they already know everything, right? So 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 you combat that by saying, well, you have to you have to say yes to the text. You have to love the text. We, let's read it with love or whatever. But but so I agree that right, eighteen year olds who think they know everything and don't have anything to learn from reading a book, like that's a certain kind of problem. But but I think that we that it it makes things worse when you when you promote this kind of like positive affect towards the text as the precondition for reading. Right. Because I don't feel that I, I don't think that's the best way to read. I mean, I mean, I think about reading as a kind of combative uh, activity. Right. I mean, like like when I want to if I like why read Kant, I want to read Kant so that I can get stronger. And the way that I'm going to get stronger is by fighting Kant. So I like when I read a book, it's like, OK, you're at, you're in the boxing 
ring. You know, you're trying you're trying to fight to become a better boxer. And if you stepped into the ring and said, "Oh, I'm going to love my opponent. I'm going to say yes to my opponent." I mean, you'd be bad at boxing. You wouldn't you wouldn't become stronger and 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 that is it, at least as valid of a way of to approach a text as 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 beginning by assuming that it has something of value that is hidden behind the difficulty of the text to read. And our job is to try to understand it so that we can possibly approach to the greatness of like, yeah, I mean, you could read that way or you could pick it up and kick its ass. Right. I mean, and why, why do one rather than the other? So. Um, yeah, I think that's actually a, a, a good approach. I think, you know, I think that's why, like, a lot of my favorite Marxists right now are not, honestly, would not be considered by most people Marxists because they don't deny basic facts that are empirically provable, such as, like, only 17% of the, no, only between 12 and 18%, depending on who's calculating and what groups you include, of the workforce in America or in anything like an organized uh, shop, and that that does not seem to be a trend that has been strategically buckable and that you can't pretend that laws nor, nor the ability of things like capital flight between States does not, you know, that it's just a matter of will and that all the workers who don't do what you said they are, are rubes not for doing it. Um, which is my other favorite thing because it both, it both does a sanctification of workers on the left while simultaneously calling them morons when they don't do what you want. Um, Again, you have an ideal of what they ought to be, and empirically existing humans fail to live up to the ideal, and so you judge them according to the ideal. That's that's Kant's practical philosophy. I mean, to, yeah, I, I mean, and, and I guess this may be the the uh, you know the rational core of the Kolakowski critique I mentioned all the way back at the beginning of this conversation is that there is a sense in which this threat, this threat of absolute formalism is, is embedded in, and not just Christian culture, but Greco Roman culture, going back to the Neoplatonist. And I, I would also add that it, it has a major effect on Islam, but, um, and it's very interesting to deal with cultures that, that have say like, nominalistic assumptions like buddhism and confucianism about like categories um they're inherently skeptical of categories themselves even though they'll have lists of categories and category types they'll also say you know they're also assert in the very next sentence that they're not real that you well, know that well, i think the, i think the more categories you have the harder it is to believe in their reality right i mean i mean pe people who really believe in categories have only a few of them mm. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, that's that's why we simplify causation to the things that we want to deal with, um, and you know it's it's been it's been frustrating for me dealing with Marxists because this does have political implications. Like if you if you're constantly yelling at people for not doing what you want them to do, but you're also saying that this is normally what not just what they should do, but what has to happen and then you literally have to come up with concepts of like well this working class person doesn't have a working class consciousness whatever the fuck that means <laughs> like uh -huh. because they're not engaging in the they're not coming to the conclusion that i have already deduced they should come to even though that deduction doesn't come from them never did and 
um, is based on is based on a, a set of uh, a set of presumptions. And it, you know, my if I have any intervention in Marxism, I want people, you know, and this is something I think that is it, it does go back to the core. People need to stop doing that because you've had two hundred years of failure. Are saying stuff like, "Oh, we have the absolute revolutionary program. Just just do what Lenin, Stalin, Mao, etc." And then looking at it and going like, "Their programs ended. I don't know." Uh, a generation ago, in most cases, um, wh- why do you keep on asserting that? It'd be like if I was asserting that we had the absolute correct truth um, to to X, and I've been disproven. You know, I feel like a, I feel like a shitty fortune teller. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think the point here is that is that we don't need the absolute universal concepts. What what we need are concepts that are that are that are adequate to the problems that face us, you know. And and I I think the time has really come to really consider what if anything is 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 the value of continuing to try to work with the concepts that we've inherited from the last 200 years of western philosophy and and to what extent we might we might be better off jettisoning them and just looking for other concepts from other places, you know, Islam, other, other, whatever else. I mean, making our own. Um, I just, I, I think the time has really come to, to really reconsider our relation to the last 200 years of, of German philosophy, which really ultimately all comes from the German idealism, um, which is even the analytics don't get out of it. Like, yeah, which is, which is, well, it has certain problematic elements to it, particularly with you know respect to theories of race. I mean, I mean, so I do think you know I think we have to take racism really seriously. I think we have to take structural white supremacy really seriously because the the way I see it, I mean, that's climate change is gonna the the, the war against climate change is gonna founder on the rock of white supremacy um, because because white supremacy is a death cult and 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 there is like this yeah I mean there's this element of of like pursuing you know pursuing our notion of ourselves as universal law-giving subjects as rational western europeans that is sort of like really a kind of irrational death cult that's going to destroy the planet and 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 maybe it would be good to consider what kind of thoughts we could think if we if we just abandoned that if we just if we just said well you know maybe kant has nothing to teach us and 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 maybe the fact that all of these people other people are responding to kant has has locked them into a certain set of, of problems and framings. And, and, and let's see what happens if we just abandon all of that and, and, and stop being intimidated by these vain, shallow university professors who, who want us to think that they're the only ones who know how to read all of this stuff. And, and, so, and so they're the only ones who can tell us what universal reason really is. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the other problem, right? Is that is that Kant says that this philosophy is something that any rational being can can understand immediately, and in fact, they do in order to have experience. But then only the university professors can tell us what it means, and it's so complicated that 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 they have to spend thirty years studying it in order to understand it. I mean, it, it's in, in a way, it's like self defeating already. I mean, I mean, you've already undermined Kant the moment that you say that he's hard to understand. Mm. You know, because yeah. That's actually true well, for I a mean, lot of philosophers, though. To be fair, but I mean, but yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, like philosophers are not hard to understand. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. You got to learn how to read. I mean, that's it's not it's not so easy. But but I, you know, I mean, I mean, it's. I think we should stop 
we should we should stop sort of like praising the difficulty of philosophers as a way to puff ourselves up for being able to understand them and 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 instead approach them by saying yeah i mean you know we can understand this pretty quickly that's not the hard part the hard part is is it true what are we going to do with it what are the alternatives um i don't know i think we should we should get the university professors out of our brains that's the that's the point so uh, we'll end this podcast uh, episode with Colin saying that malice were right, that we should yeah, uh-huh. justificate the, the intellectuals. Um, I'm not, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in the process of self justification right now. So I'm doing, I'm doing my best. <laughs> that's true. You actually do live on the side of a mountain um, yeah. as an academic. So that's fair. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to get other people out here with me. Yeah. We're going to, I'm going <laughs> to raise some goats. We're going to, it's going to be, it's going to be, we're going to raise goats, read books. It'll be good times. Kant, yeah. Kant was thoroughly disapproved. Uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for having Thank me on. I feel like that's, a, that's on. a natural place for the conversation to wrap up. Yep. Uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. It's uh, fun. Yeah, thanks. Right away. Thank you for supporting VarnBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening. Bye.